Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Jenny Rook. Jenny is the founder and managing partner of San Francisco-based Genoa Ventures. I've been wanting to invite Jenny on the podcast for quite a while. I wrote about her in 2018 in an article about nine VCs who matter, but you never read about. As I wrote then, VCs take on lots of different types of risk. There's biology risk, that something can't be reproduced from mice to humans. There's management risk, sometimes you back bad executives. There's market risk, maybe the market won't buy what you're selling at your preferred price. There's syndicate risk, your co-investors might run out of money or lose confidence, forcing you to prop up portfolio companies if you want to keep them alive until the next milestone. What you seldom see are VCs who shoulder a more profound type of risk by starting their own firm and even by starting a firm with an unproven business model. Jenny did this by starting Genoa through creating the largest life science syndicate on AngelList, not by going through the usual big pension and endowment funds who typically invest in VC funds. And here's how she describes her investment approach. Quote, I'm particularly motivated by novel research platforms because of what surprised me about lab work was how manual and slow and low throughput a lot of available tools were for doing science. So when I see companies that are trying to develop new tools that make more and better data for researchers, that gets me excited. And how's it going so far? Like any early stage VC, it takes a while to build a track record. But two of Jenny's big investments from the early days of Genoa are emerging. Emeryville, California-based Zymergen, an industrial biotech company, and Berkeley, California-based Caribou Biosciences, a company that uses CRISPR editing for cell therapies. Zymergen went public in April and now has a market valuation of $4 billion. Caribou Biosciences recently filed IPO paperwork to raise up to $100 million. It took a lot of guts and creativity to do what Jenny has done and continues to do. And like a lot of people, she didn't come down this road in some kind of straight line. But here she is, smack dab at a very interesting spot at the intersection of biology and technology. Now before we dive in, a word from the sponsor of the long run, DNA Script. DNA Script recently launched the Syntax System, the first ever benchtop enzymatic DNA printer, which uses their proprietary enzymatic synthesis technology. The Syntax system prints DNA on demand right in the lab. Researchers simply import their sequences, and within hours, the system synthesizes DNA oligos that can be used immediately in molecular biology and genomics workflows. DNA Script's enzymatic DNA synthesis emulates nature to overcome the drawbacks of chemical-based methods traditionally used until now. Designed for fully automated walk-away synthesis, the Syntax system takes less than 15 minutes to set up with no special training to operate. With Syntax, researchers can accelerate discovery with DNA on demand. For more information on DNA Script, please visit www.dnascript.com. Now, please join me and Jenny Rook on the long run. Jenny Rook, welcome to the long run. Thank you, Luke. So happy to be here. 
So Jenny, um, I, I, uh, I've been following your career from afar <laughs> for many years. And it, I, I remember once having you at a private dinner that I hosted in San Francisco probably 10 years ago. I'm not sure you remember this, uh, but um, it's really cool to see uh, someone that you, you kind of get to know and follow from a distance and see them take, uh, like go on really a fascinating trajectory. So I, I just want to let you know, I'm really excited to hear more about like how you got to where you are. Well, thank you so much, Luke. I, I've uh, always appreciated the way you make uh, connections in the industry and really have helped build bridges across you know, the different regions and sectors of the biotech industry. Uh, and and you reaching out to me for that dinner was much appreciated. You know, I had, um, was a couple of years into my time at the at the Gates Foundation in Seattle, um, which was an incredible experience, but also somewhat isolated from, you know, the activity in San Francisco and Boston. And so that dinner was very thoughtful and, and much appreciated and, you know, kind of the magic that you do in our in our industry. Well, I don't know if I had very much to do with uh, setting you on your course, but um, but thank you. Um, so l l let's just dive right in. Um, how? Um, where did your story begin? Where are you from? Well, I always have to ask people what they mean by the question, where are you from? Uh, we moved around quite a lot when I was uh, a child and preteen. Uh, so where I was born was Massachusetts, but we moved uh, before I remember that. And then we lived in several places in the South uh, before I was age eight. Uh, but the answer, short answer would be mostly Georgia. So we moved to a small town in, in South Georgia when I was eight, and then to another small rural town in the greater uh, Atlanta area when I was 12. Uh, and my my parents and uh, one of my siblings are still there in the in the greater Atlanta area. So I huh. would say, you know, Georgia-ish. Interesting. So what did your parents do for a living? My dad is an aerospace engineer and a test pilot. And, uh, and so that was a, a time of, uh, in some cases, working with the military, in some cases, working with uh, commercial uh, uh, aircraft developers like Piper and Lockheed, and really just kind of pursuing um, interesting roles uh, in that in that industry. Okay, so you're not exactly an army brat, but uh, part of the kind of the military um, world as a, as a contractor. Uh, a little bit, yeah. So Air Force, since he was a, a, a pilot and aerospace engineer with uh, with the Air Force, but the, I think the primary drivers were um, that same sort of uh, looking for innovation and and making new things that I, I can relate to uh, with these innovative companies that that needed uh, that skill set. Okay, now what about your uh, mom? So my mom is an incredibly gifted educator and we children are very fortunate to um, have had her as our our mother, our chief development officer, our our teacher um, through through many years. Uh, she, uh, for most of my childhood, uh, did not work outside the home. And so, you know, I had all of that, uh, you know, incredible capability pointed at me and my brothers, um, uh, helping us uh, learn about the world and develop skills and, and move, you know, through our own uh, development. 
Interesting. So, you know, during this uh, pandemic year, I think a lot of people have had a chance to reflect on some of their upbringing and values that were instilled uh, that maybe we didn't think that much about um, for, for a number of years. Have you thought back about that experience growing up and kind of what your parents instilled or the communities where you were and how that shaped uh, your journey? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think I was just so incredibly fortunate to have this amazing duo of parents who had um, very different um, talents and skill sets, sort of the complementary left brain, right brain, engineering and math on one side, um, literature, music, arts on the other, uh, and their their willingness to invest in in me and you know each of my siblings in a, a, a enormous and, and very tailored way. Um, I just you know I never uh, lacked for anything, and so I was really set free to focus on uh, to learning and figuring things out and experiencing the world. So super grateful for such a, a supportive. Um, family environment where I got to run at whatever my interests and passions were. And what kind of schools did you attend? Um, all the kinds, actually. So I had quite a sampling of of educational experiences in a small public schools through grade four, uh, private small private school grades five and six, um, homeschooled in seventh and eighth grade, um, and then actually went to college after that. Huh. Wow. So you, I guess there has to be a certain versatility maybe that comes from that <laughs> le- learning in different environments. I think that's right. It suited me well. I, I'm just a, a, an omnivorous learner, reader, uh, curious. I always want more information, more understanding, more learning of skills. And so, um, you know, being in those different settings, they weren't always terrific, uh, educational settings. I would say small rural grade school in South Georgia, uh, you know, not not necessarily uh, setting records for educational excellence in many cases. Um, and that's where I was so fortunate to have, again, a, a mom who uh, was just frankly one of the best educators uh, I, I think you could you could meet. And, uh, and libraries, right? I'm really grateful for libraries where you could, you know, I think I read every book in the Perry, Georgia public library. <laughs> Thank goodness for the public library. Can we just say that for a second? Okay. So how did you, uh, how did the light bulb first come on for you about science, science and math? Yeah, I was broadly interested, like I said, in, in learning and, and skill acquisition. Um, but I think I had a, a particular aptitude for, for the quantitative subject. So I'm just really kind of ripping through math, um, in those, in those homeschooling years, seventh and eighth grade. And, and that's what led me, my mom to look for, um, some other kind of education outside the home on the on the technical side, on, on math front. And so she petitioned a local uh, small technical college to, uh, to, to let me in for you know, freshman algebra in what would have been my ninth grade year. Um, that went very well. Uh, so they let me stay for, for trig in the next quarter. And then by the spring quarter, uh, I, was, I was going full time. And so 
there's uh, some of it was um, aptitude. Some of it was, you know, Southern tech took a, took a bet on this, uh, you know, 13 year old kid that I wouldn't embarrass them. And so that was a very technical, you know, engineering, math, science oriented environment, didn't really have much of an arts program. Um, so there was a kind of self-reinforcing element there to, to the path. Um, and, uh, and I guess, I guess that, that was uh, one of the biggest, um, you know, drivers there of my direction. Interesting. So you were a homeschooled kid at 13 at that time, seventh, eighth grade, starting to do high school, uh, level and, and, uh, more advanced math. Uh, did you go into, um, like classes with adults? I did. My, my dad would, uh, would drop me off at, at college, uh, on his way to, to Lockheed. Um, I would, you know, take my two or three classes that day, spend the rest of the time in the library studying, studying other things that maybe weren't, you know, currently, uh, on my class slate at the time. And then, uh, my mom would, would pick me up maybe in the afternoon or I'd stay the whole day and my dad would pick me up on his way home. Huh. Was this, was this a little bit difficult socially? Cause you know, school, um, has that role, <laughs> which we all know and appreciate now. Right. Yeah. I feel really grateful for the way that path decoupled social from educational, uh, development and goals for me. Um, it meant that I could, uh, optimize for, for each objective, uh, separately. So, you know, in, in school, I could, uh, move as quickly as I wanted and, and have the kind of right level of challenges, um, without also navigating, I think some of the really sticky, um, high school social issues. Uh, of course I needed to, uh, get that those needs met as well. Fortunately, I'd already, you know, established a really loving, creative, fun social group in those seventh and eighth grade years. So we were you know, still living in the same place. So I continued to be friends with, with those people, uh, go to their football games, go to their proms, <laughs> things like that, you know, have, have sleepovers with them. And so there was a really nice, I think, um, separation of, of those two issues. I really feel for kids generally who, um, are, you know, trying to, you know, figure out life, um, in the context of, you know, an average U S high school, which uh, the problem with averages is that it's probably not the best thing for, for any, for anybody exactly. Um, so in that sense, I feel really lucky, um, that, uh, that I was able to do that. Well, I'm no expert on this, but I do know that, you know, those middle school years, high school years are especially hard for, for girls, science and math in particular. Like this is like, isn't this when, you know, um, the research says that boys tend to get called on more and girls tend to do less of that. I, they, you know, they, they may show aptitude early, but it starts to, I don't know what happens. Um, it sounds like that didn't didn't happen. Right. I was protected from that. Right. I was, I was learning math and physics and computer science in the context of uh, we'll call them adults right there, 18 and 19 year olds um, who were there because they wanted to be there. Right. And were pursuing, you know, careers and uh, as opposed to in the context of um, age peers who perhaps were distracted by, um, you know, finding their place in the world, which is also a legitimate pursuit, but, uh, you know, is confounded by the math problem, perhaps. 
Right, right, right. But you were able to decouple it, as you say. Okay, so you're, um, I take it you were a pretty good student. Like you got good grades and you got good self-esteem out of this and, and felt like, okay, I want to learn more. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, uh, I am a student. That's probably my best function. <laughs> I love to learn. I am self-directed in my learning. Um, nothing I love more than a pop quiz and a chance to make a great grade. <laughs> so, so my, I guess my internal drives were um, pretty well suited for, you know, the reward system of, of school. And, and that really worked for me to, you know, learn some great skills and um, prepare for, for a career. Okay. Now where, where'd you go to college? So that that first college uh, was a place called Southern Tech. Uh, it was a kind of branch of the Georgia Tech uh, system. Um, as it became clear that um, that I was going to college full time, it, it it didn't make sense to stay at the smaller place. So we transferred to to Georgia Tech, finished my degree in physics uh, there, and then um, oh, we can we can talk about the the transition from there to to life sciences. Yeah, how did you arrive on physics as your focus and then shifting it toward genetics, biology? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I had been studying math and computer science um, and and physics kind of broadly at, at Georgia Tech and didn't have a career goal yet. I think the objective was to lay down a foundation for uh, for a future career, and so just getting the the fundamentals of uh, you know a physics degree uh, seemed like a you know sensible way to prepare for whatever was next, uh, since it was you know an underlying discipline to to so many other um, science and engineering disciplines. Uh huh. So when you're 18 and you don't really know exactly what you want to do, you kind of thought, um, if I learn physics, I mean. This it had is just optionality to it, you know. <laughs> it's 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 a hard quantitative science, and that's a pretty good place to start. I mean, grounding in the sciences. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of the 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 idea. Um, you know, I, I, we didn't know then that uh, computer science was going to be the field that it has become, and so it was a little bit more of a um, at the time. You know, I did a lot of programming in Fortran and machine language and basic and um, and it was it was an engineering discipline, not a world changing discipline. <laughs> so um, I wanted something that you know a little more more fundamental that would give me uh, give me optionality. Hmm. Okay. So how did you end up going into biology? Right. So I would say I didn't go into biology. I was never really drawn to biology because it was presented as a, a uh, a sort of discipline of um, description and memorization. It seemed sort of arbitrary. The sort of, it was pictures and um, uh, Latin names, and it, it it seemed descriptive as opposed to quantitative. And I did take a biology elective. This would have been my junior year at, at Georgia Tech. Uh, just kind of round things out and. Um, whatever was doing fine. It was good, good to know these things. I hadn't really learned a lot of biology before that. Uh, but then we got to the two week section on genetics and I just fell in love. It was, here was the quantitative information, rich underpinnings of all of life. 
um, the, the genetic code, the variations therein, the way that was recombined and transmitted from generation to generation, man, I was hooked. I just uh-huh. knew this, I have to, I have to know everything about this. Uh, so I finished the, the physics degree, but I, I crammed as much kind of genetics and biophysics into that last year as I could. And I applied to, uh, genetics PhD programs so that I could, go just immerse myself in this field I had fallen in love with. So there's a code here. There's, there's a logic, there's a logic (laughs) to it. Right. And it runs across all species on earth. Like, isn't that amazing? Yeah. (laughs) Like you're kidding me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of mystery in it because it's not exactly a plus B equals C (laughs) far, far from it. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot to learn. There's an enormous amount of um, structure and physical processes um, and sort of the biochemistry that underlies, uh, you know, all of that shaping of, of code. And I was, you know, I had all of the naivete and the zeal of, of a new convert, right? And I, I was, at the time, was sort of a, a genetic determinist. I'm like, oh, clearly this is, this is really what makes any living thing what it is. Um, uh, I've, I've since recanted. Uh, oh yeah. So. As you learn more, we realize it, biology is complicated. I, I need to have that on, on a bumper sticker or something. <laughs> That's right. Well, it, or it, it's not just code actually. I've been known to, to yell that, um, hopefully somewhat politely at some of my tech colleagues, uh, tech investor colleagues who have been sort of recent, more recently having, I think the same epiphany that I did, uh, whatever, 30 years ago. Um, yes, it's code and that's super exciting, but it's also not. Um, and, and so we must approach it with some humility. <laughs> exactly. It's not code in that, de- you know, deterministic, you know, predictive zero and one binary way. <laughs> it, it, but okay. So, um, you, um, what year was this, that the, the, the epiphany happened? The, the moment, I guess that would have been 1990. Okay. Okay. So this is uh, genetics, just like really kind of at the big bang kind of moment um, for you know, human genome project just getting started. Um, okay. So you go to Yale for graduate school. That's right. Uh, I applied to you know a half dozen places. I honestly, I think California wasn't on my mental map, um, having been primarily an East Coast child. Uh, so. I applied to places like Columbia, Rockefeller, Chicago, um, but Yale was a real draw because there was a dedicated genetics department, small one of the one of the oldest, one of the earliest genetics departments. So a tri- terrific tradition of um, education and research there. And so it wasn't a. Uh, I didn't want to learn. I didn't want a biology PhD. I wanted a genetics PhD, and so that's where I ended up uh, picking. And who was your advisor? Um, well, of course, one, one rotates through a few labs, but ultimately I joined, I was the first graduate student for uh, Tian Xu, who had uh, come through the, the great tradition of uh, Drosophila geneticists like Jerry Rubin and Spiros Arvanitsakonis. Um, and that was a great uh, uh, model system, fruit flies, because it's sort of really nice point on the on the complexity spectrum where it's complex enough to do some really interesting work, 
um, and, and be kind of relevant to, uh, humans and other complex life forms, but not so complex that you, you know, couldn't get in there and manipulate things and, uh, get very high numbers as well. Be very quantitative about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, what were some of the key lessons or takeaways from your time in graduate school? Oh boy. Well, the first couple of years were just blissful because I was um, immersed in this, this field that I had just fallen in love with. And so the key takeaways were everything I could possibly cram into my brain about the history and the current um, status of, of genetics. Um, it, was, it was hard. It was very hard to learn, to read and understand primary research. And I would say, you know, kind of foreshadowing to today, um, the ability to critically look at original data um, and think about experimental design, uh, what the work, what questions the work is designed to answer, what questions the work cannot answer, um, and where our monkey brains, which like to make interpretations and publish papers, might run out in front of, <laughs> of those limitations. And so to just constantly be developing uh, kind of one's own critical thinking around, around science and, and what science is telling us. Yeah, well, it's such a relevant topic for today, <laughs> um, how we know what we know. Um, did you have a journal club? Or something like that, where you hash this stuff out with your your classmates. We did. We did. Did you also experience this? That's a, well, that's a very firsthand kind of question. I mean, I'm not a, a trained scientist. I'm a journalist. Uh, but you know, there's always you know people staying up late after the newspapers gone to bed and asking ourselves these questions about what did we learn today and what what are the unanswered questions? How do we know that? Why did that person do that? Constantly, it's a, if there is something in common, I'd say we're constantly questioning, and we operate we operate from a position of uncertainty and doubt, and and trying to learn new things every day. So maybe this is, uh, <laughs> but that that that's that's my world, your world. How, how did you develop that that critical thinking muscle? I guess. Well, no. So you're you're absolutely right about about journal club. I think one of the the didactic traditions of the genetics department at Yale was every um, first and second year student um, every Wednesday night had journal club um, where we would uh, read, critique, and discuss one or two papers. And and the responsibility for uh, kind of leading the discussion rotated through the group. Uh, in the department, like I said, it was small focused. Um, our class, I think, had eight students, which was the largest there had ever been. And so these were really small, intense um, uh, discussions uh, around original science week after week. And that was informally known as pizza class uh, because we also were allowed to to order in pizza. Uh, and <laughs> so um, very happy times. Um, but in addition, I would say, you know, just had some some terrific professors. Um, uh, Alan Weiner in particular comes to mind. Uh, the way he taught his molecular biology class was very much a critical analysis of 
seminal papers in the field. Uh, and so uh, being required to and then supported through um, reading and, and critiquing those papers was um, you know, probably some of the greatest skills I, I was ever taught. And even our exams in, the, in that class were, um, we knew in advance that he was going to pick from a selection of important papers. And he was asking us to describe what had been done, what were the methods, what were the strengths and weaknesses, what were the conclusions. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that's in many ways much more important. I don't remember necessarily uh, you know, the, the specific paper around, um, you know, how the mating experiment in E. coli helped us understand the linear nature of chromosomes. I don't, I don't remember the exact experiment, but uh, that, that skill set of um, just being really critical and thoughtful and critical being a positive thing, right? I realize, as I say, a critical sounds negative, but critical being a positive and essential attribute in science. Yeah, for sure. So valuable. So at what point did you start thinking about your long-term career goals? Did, did you think about becoming a professor or, you know, the standard path or um, how, how did you think about that? Uh, well, you know, as I, as I had said, the, the drive to go get a genetics PhD was all about learning. I was so hungry just to know this field um, and there, I had not asked myself, what was I going to do with it? And it, it turned out that the assumption at the time, uh, was if you're getting a PhD, you're obviously on an academic research track. Right. Um, and so there were as happy as the first couple of years were, uh, the next few years were, uh, tough, uh, confusing, and involved a fair bit of, of tension and having to thrash my own own way um, down a different path. Um, I, uh, I remember being in the four degree room, right, the cold room. I was doing uh, DNA injections into uh, fruit fly eggs, uh, you know, to transform their genomes for experiment and. Um, and doing things like dissection of imaginal discs for, for fluorescent staining. And I remember there was a moment where I said, uh, oh, I'm, I'm getting, you know, I've got diamond forceps and I'm doing this under a, a, a microscope and it's cold. And, and I thought, I'm getting really good at this. And I thought, I'm getting really good at this. That, that is frustrating. <laughs> that doesn't seem like the rapid pursuit of knowledge and um, progress that, uh, you know, my pace of learning has afforded me to date. And so it really kind of stopped me in my tracks. And I said, I'm not sure this bench research path um, is, is right for me. I, I had actually gone into to school thinking I was gonna do a purely quantitative uh, thesis. I was doing kind of statistical work in the genetics of complex disease, like um, schizophrenia with David Pauls and some genetic epidemiology. I have a master's equivalent in genetic epidemiology. And the faculty said, um, and here's a lesson in don't necessarily listen to others, at least test their assumptions. The faculty said, um, you'll never get a job. There's very few jobs in just purely 
you know, quantitative biology. We didn't even really have the word bioinformatics at the time. So, so you really, you have to, you have to get trained in the lab research. That's, that's the future. <laughs> so, um, perhaps if I had not listened, I would, uh, I would still be an academic uh, on the bioinformatics side and, and that would have been just fine. Um, but because instead I was at the bench and saying, you know, this just isn't the pace at which uh, I want to get things done, it caused me to look elsewhere um, for, for a career path. You got to get a J-O-B <laughs> at some point. And you just, did you think that being on the faculty would, I mean, you're, you would be more hands off? Because I'm not sure I understand. You, you were saying that you got good with your hands and thought that this, you know, maybe you could be too hands on and not um, theoretical enough. Um, uh, but being a PI would naturally be more theoretical, right? That seems right. Although I strongly believe that the, um, the that there is an inextricability between um, the physical aspect of biological inquiry inquiry and the the theoretical. Um, and maybe this comes back to that that um, critical paper reading. You know, there the way one asks the question down to details like, well, how many replicates are you doing? Is it a ninety six well plate or Eppendorf tubes? What is the copy number? How many cycles did you do in the PCR machine? These the way the question is asked is part of the answer. I see. Yeah. To be a good theoretician, you, you do need to be close to the hands-on experimentalism. I think so. I think um, that that those are highly related. But another aspect of it was, though, was, again, just the pace. Like I could see, you know, extraordinary research scientists around me. Um, there was a there was a young up and coming faculty member named Jennifer Doudna there who was uh, was just tearing it up in the RNA world um, and other you know great examples of of thought leaders in their field and and I could see that they were on fire to answer a particular question and were going to do that to the exclusion of others and I knew that wasn't my style either that um, that that level of singular focus around uh, a specific subdiscipline within the space yeah. um, was going to be dissatisfying to me. So I also wanted to find a way to um, learn and contribute, uh, I would say, more broadly in the field. Interesting. So you knew Jennifer way back then? Uh, yes. She was one of those, um, you know, obviously rising stars, uh, uh, who, when graduate students talked about, you know, whose lab to, to join, uh, it was a very desirable position to get. She was uh, just had so much uh, energy and, and talent uh, for the work that she was doing. DNA Script recently launched the Syntax System, the first ever benchtop enzymatic DNA printer, which uses their proprietary enzymatic synthesis technology. The Syntax system prints DNA on demand right in the lab. Researchers simply import their sequences, and within hours, the system synthesizes DNA oligos that can be used immediately in molecular biology and genomics workflows. 
DNA scripts, enzymatic DNA synthesis emulates nature to overcome the drawbacks of chemical-based methods traditionally used until now. Designed for fully automated walk-away synthesis, the Syntax system takes less than 15 minutes to set up with no special training to operate. With Syntax, researchers can accelerate discovery with DNA on demand. For more information on DNA Script, please visit www.dnascript.com. So you, you're starting to now explore at this point. Where, what's your place going to be? Um, how did you go about that exploration? Well, fortunately, uh, as mentioned above, I had, I had chosen to pursue the degree at Yale. Um, and part of that choice, in addition to the, the excellent kind of focused genetics program, was it was my first exposure to a true university. My, Georgia Tech was an incredible education in the math and sciences, but it's it's pretty, it is it's in the name, it's technical. Right? So, um, so I hadn't really had uh, access to um, broader education and people and resources um, outside of the, the technical discipline. So I started really taking advantage of that at, at Yale. Um, I took classes in film. I took classes in economics. I joined the, you know, the Gilbert and Sullivan Society, <laughs> much to my advisors, I think, chagrin, because I think m- mostly when people, you know, get into the third and fourth year of their PhD, they're super focused on turning out the papers and getting the postdoc and, you know, it's time to, time to buckle down and be focused. And I was going in the opposite direction, just really casting the net wide, um, availing myself of, of the excellence that was there at Yale, uh, basically in all, in all disciplines. Okay. So, um, you're, this is the part of the process, the exploring of what we now call, you know, alternative careers <laughs> uh, with, with that advanced <laughs> right. scientific degree. Yeah. Um, Which was uh, very upsetting to a lot of people, right? They just could not conceive of why you would do it. I, I had a, a colleague who, after having this conversation a few times with him, at some point he said, now I get it, Jenny. I can see why someone would do something less than <laughs> the <Less> research. Than, <laughs> ouch. And, and he thought he was finally being, you know, supportive. <laughs> like, no, nah, no. Um, there's just another world out there, guys. And I kind of okay. want to see some of it. <laughs> so how did you end up going into uh, the financial world? Uh, well, I, a lot of my career decisions until really the most recent one, um, as you can hear, were motivated around knowledge and skill acquisition. And so I was, I really explored um, through conversations, um, through career fairs, et cetera, just a a broad range of what do you do if you know science, but want to have a different function in the world than making more of it? I was, uh, I looked at patent law, I looked at science writing, um, education. I was fortunate that at the time, McKinsey, the management consulting firm, was recruiting pretty heavily from uh, non-MBA programs, from in particular science programs. The theory being, hey, we need we need more critical thinkers who are quanti- quantitative and analytical, um, uh, and uh, then we can then we can possibly get from the best MBA schools. Let's recruit some from 
science and engineering, and we will teach them business. Uh, I didn't know what business was. I didn't know what consulting was. I'd never had a non-technical job. Um, but, but what it sounded like was, oh, uh, every three or four months or so, I'm going to be presented with a really hard problem and have to go solve it. And in doing so, I'm going to learn a whole lot about something entirely new. Uh, and you can imagine, given given our conversation so far, how appealing that was. Well, yeah, if you're a self-directed, uh, oriented learner, um, yeah, you, you that's that's great variety. That's right. Throw throw me in, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so so that was appealing. Uh, I figured again, kind of optionality. No matter what I do next, I will have been sort of trained in business and strategy and and seen a variety of different kind of jobs and careers. Um, and then the clincher was going through the incredibly rigorous um, interview process, multiple rounds of interviews. I just was so impressed with the people. I, I want to be, I want these to be my peers. I want to learn from them. I want to be challenged by them. So if I could you know, throw myself into this environment, uh, you know, it's a, it's a no regret move, no matter what happens next. So what kind of companies did you get to know or uh, were these Fortune 500 type uh, issues you're dealing with? Yeah, it's typically more like, you know, Fortune 50, right? So McKinsey is a large, very established, um, very high-end management consulting. And so we'd be brought in by the the C-suite of top 10 pharma um, for example, to think about R&D strategy or um, one, one was a biotech strategy, which it's funny that, that that was even the framing then of the pharma company saying, what should we do about this whole biotech thing that seems to be, <laughs> seems to be coming along? Um, so, so mostly very, uh, very large pharma and biotech um, that were thinking about you know, top level global strategic questions. And you enjoyed this. I hated it. You hated it. <laughs> Why? <laughs> so um, it turns out that um, very large, successful companies aren't necessarily correlated with um, speed, creativity, and innovation. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I loved the work of solving the problems but it it felt it felt slow. It felt weirdly wrapped up in in political issues that had nothing to do with you know the quality of the science or the nature of the market opportunity. Um, those sort of dynamics that that frankly don't motivate me, and I'm not necessarily very good at. Um, so that was that was getting kind of frustrating. This was right around 2000 as well. So the Human Genome Project had been declared complete. It was clearly going to be the age of the genome. Um, here I was with a freshly minted you know, PhD in the discipline, and I wasn't really getting to touch kind of all of that change and innovation. Uh, it felt very far away from you know the C-suite and top ten pharma. So was that when you went over to investing? I had a couple more steps. Uh, the 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 change moment, the really the defining moment. I'm so grateful that I, I got staffed on a project in the summer of 2000, consulting to Affymetrics. Um, Sue Siegel was at the helm. the The company was was public, very high growth, um, 
and they called in McKinsey to uh, help think about the, the growth strategy. This is a very unusual uh, project for McKinsey because it was you know, a much smaller up and coming technology driven company. The culture was so innovative. The teams seemed really bound together by this common goal. They were moving as fast as they could to really transform the industry. Um, and I realized, ah, this is what I want for the rest of my career to be in and work with these kinds of companies that um, are combining technology and biology to transform the space um, with a group of people who have a very strong shared sense of purpose toward, uh, toward a very exciting goal. So this brought together a number of threads for you, because this is the original gene chip company. For those who don't rec- recognize it, you know they were selling my uh, gene expression um, um, instruments and, uh, and and consumables. And so you've got like real genetics. So you're drawing on that experience, uh, technology, uh, management strategy, thinking about markets. Like it's starting to come together for you here, right? It's it's all the pieces, right? And and. In addition, I think we would call, in retrospect, Avimetrics the first omics company because their insight was, you know, if you can use semiconductor technology to miniaturize the way we're interrogating the, in this case, the transcriptome or the genome, um, you can get thousands or millions of data points as opposed to the five or six I felt like I was getting from, you know, artisanal handcrafted uh, work at the bench. And I thought this is the, this is the way science should be done because it is such a complex um, and, and data rich pursuit. And it's much more akin to what drew me to the field in the first place, which is this sense of an enormous amount of information you know, crammed into every cell, right, and every organism, and and every cross, and every generation. Well, this also this also comes back to something you said earlier about like your your desire to learn more at a at a faster pace. Uh, so if you're able to you know do more automated things in the lab, you can ask and answer more questions more quickly, gather more information, and you know, you can put that quantitative brain to work. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So give us the data. We don't have time. We don't have time to wait around. There's so much to learn. We need better tools that you know, sequence whole genomes and look at individual cells and do that rapidly. We need millions and billions of data points. And so that was, I feel like, a turning point where I said, ah, there's an opportunity here to constantly be looking for the next tools and technologies that can catapult the field forward. And that's okay. what we want to do. But you're still, this is still McKinsey at the time? It was still McKinsey. Okay, so if your company is like Affymetrics, that's just kind of small fry if you're McKinsey. Uh, so not really like you're, you're not getting the attention of the big boss or whoever at McKinsey or does. So like, I, I don't. I, I want to fast forward a little bit here, Jenny. Um, how did you? Like Gates Foundation was was one important stop before your current one. So what was it about Gates Foundation that that drew you there? What'd you do there? Well, let me let me fill in just a, a couple of skipping stones along the way. Otherwise it it won't quite track. Um, Left McKinsey because to your point, I knew that kind of opportunity um, to to drive innovation was be happening at the small companies, which were not the McKinsey client base. So joined a 20 person genomics startup in the 
Boston area called U.S. Genomics, did that for five years in a variety of roles, including corporate development. And that was my transition to investing. So I got into venture, having been a venture-backed operator in 2006 at Fidelity Biosciences, now called F-Prime Capital, um, just one of the best early stage life sciences investing teams there is. And so that's where I got my investing playbook and training. Um, had done that for a couple of years, was starting to make investments, um, particularly loved looking at, at tools. When, to your point, the opportunity to spend some time at the Gates Foundation came up. And the draws were several fold. One, I had kind of the, the basic toolkit for being a venture investor, but I recognized that that was a you know specific kind of of investing or capital deployment. And I thought, hmm, being at this place that has 30 and 40 year time horizons and measures returns in literally in live saved as opposed to capital back, what does that do to um, the investor playbook? How, how will that affect how I think about investing. So I thought that would be an interesting development opportunity. But the other was the global nature of the problem set. So I had noticed that, you know, U.S. venture is tend to be pretty focused on U.S. market opportunities for life sciences. Makes sense. That's where you're going to get the best returns in general. But to shift that to where can we have the most impact? How many lives can we save? And Um, malaria versus cholera? How many lives can we save in Africa versus um, Southeast Asia, right? I just, I wanted that global exposure to both the the needs, the problem set, as well as the the people who were trying to tackle it. Now, at this time, the Gates Foundation, had they just started with the equity investing in biotech startups as well? So you could kind of operate on several fronts by this point. You could no, they hadn't done that yet? No, uh, no, I was part of setting that up, actually. Okay. Yeah, so what they were great at at the time was grants making to academic, um, NGOs, other uh, great partners in the space. They were great at corporate partnerships with very large corporates. Um, they hadn't really built out a tool set for interacting with the startups that I loved. And so I thought, here's where I can help. So to your point, in addition to making and managing grants in engineered biology, which is what I what I did in my program role, um, I can also help set up, uh, shape and set up the ability for the foundation to use other capital tools like equity investing and debt um, and try to build some bridges with, with the venture world that I knew and loved. Yeah, well, and this is an important shift at the Gates Foundation. I wrote about it at the time um, when, you know, because clearly there's a lot of great work in academia and there's places for big companies where, you know, only only big companies can do like a global vaccination campaign. <laughs> but but there's that middle, there, there's this area where startups are really the right kind of organizational structure to to do to to, to achieve the technical um, objective. And furthermore, once you've established that platform, it can be used for a lot of different things if you bring that kind of focus that the Gates Foundation has. So, you know, a a new, you know, antibody drug discovery platform, say, might be good for oncology, might also be good for infectious disease. Correct. Exactly right. And that sort of dual use of transformational platforms was a real sweet spot in the early investing program there. 
Okay. Okay. So you're there for uh, a few years. Yep, about four. How'd you get the itch to start your own firm? Right. Well, so you just said um, some words that are music to my ears, which are really about a belief in the role of startups in rapid transformational change. I just love what happens when a group of people with complementary skills and a shared vision take the risk, starting a company, attaching you know, proprietary technology to uh, exciting market opportunities. Like that is, that is to me, as far as I know, the fastest way to, to make change progress and drive science forward. Um, it's what works for me, at least. It's, it's sort of my metabolic rate is that that pace, not large companies, not foundations as, as great as the, the um, foundation is. It, it's, you know, it's not moving at startup pace. So I, I knew I needed to move back into the the startup world um, decided in 2013 to move here to the Bay Area because I also knew this geography was the best place for those biology meets technology, you know, melting pots, uh, being able to build these chimeric teams that could do something truly different. So this is this sounds pretty gutsy, Jenny. Like you you, <laughs> you quit a good job at the Gates Foundation uh, and move to the Bay Area just to figure stuff out. To do the thing. No, it, 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 I had to do it. I think, you know, many entrepreneurs will say, you know, if you tell them, oh, that seems really brave. Like I had to do it. I, to, I did. I remember the colleague, um, when I told him I was leaving the foundation, he said, oh, what's, where are you going next? And I said, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to figure that out. And he was, you could see the fear on his face. <laughs> but, but for me, it was, uh, it was the first career move I ever made that was no longer about acquiring the next set of skills um, or knowledge. And like, okay, I have, I'll always be learning, but I have this set that is, um, that is uniquely suited to this early stage work I want to do. It's time to go figure out how to put that to use. And so I thought I'd give it a shot. That's quite a bet on yourself. Now, were you thinking that you would start a company or start a venture firm or, or were how, how, how did you think about this? Yeah, it was an open question. Um, I love, love, love building companies that, that zero to a hundred, um, that, that, um, journey that I got to be on at us genomics. It's just the best time. I love that. Um, so I was open to, you know, finding another one of those and either starting, joining, um, helping build, um, I was also open to uh, investing. I became a venture partner once again with uh, with F Prime Capital, also with Antera Capital, which is the world's largest food and ag fund. So I was I was open either way. What's what drove me was I have to um, you know help these companies exist and thrive, and and was open to what the role would be. Um, but what I found um, in that first year was that these kinds of companies that I love. Uh, still struggle to get that first round of institutional capital because they're they fall through the cracks. You know, they're bio, but not biotech, and they weren't really being understood and served by the venture landscape. Tools, instruments, um, synthetic biology. 
Yeah. Ag bio. Mm-hmm. They tend to operate behind the scenes. They don't have the big uh, flashy IPOs. Uh, well, they didn't, but they do now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but th- yeah, this was just not the hot area. People were looking at therapeutics uh, by, by and large. And diagnostics, uh, you know, it's hard business. Uh, but there were people who invest in it. Research but mostly tools. not. Mostly life sciences investing, meant therapeutics investing, and that's still predominantly the case as well. Yep, yep. So you you're kind of nibbling around the edges. It sounds like for about a year here in the Bay Area before you really settle on um, starting Genoa. Yeah, the moment was was Imogen, right? So I met those Imogen founders in uh, sort of late, actually mid 2013. Spent some time with them as a consultant, thinking about fundraising strategy, introduced them to investors on the bio side, on the tech side. Um, eventually just said, look, I'd like to write you a check. This is ridiculous. It should not be this hard for this transformational company to raise the seed round. This is this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So the there was that moment of do I join? this team that I love on this journey that I think is going to be, you know, a world changer, or do I look for the next Zymergen, which I think will also need me for some amount of time is will also need, you know, myself and my colleagues at Genoa who have the deep science and are willing to engage in early scientific and technical risk, but have an appetite for something beyond, you know, traditional biotech. Um, and so that was that was kind of the moment where I I, I said okay um, I'm not going to be an operator I'm going to commit to being the kind of venture investor that is a partner to these incredible chimeric transformational companies. And what was it about Zymergen that excited you? Well, the a few things the the team was what I would call the first second gen Synbio company, right? They had, um, a couple of them had spent time in Amaris. And so they had been pursuing Synbio in the commercial setting. Um, They had deep skills collectively had the three pillars they needed. World-class science with Zach Serber, scientific leadership, um, strong practical operations from Jed Dean. And then um, again, world-class knowledge of top um, chemical companies in the chemical industry from uh, from Josh uh, from his time at McKinsey and serving those clients. So they really brought together a unique combination that was so much greater than the, the sum of the parts that was going to drive, I believed, this new, new-ish discipline of, of Synbio into that you know, many trillion dollar opportunity in the chemical space. And so you decide you're going to invest. You're not going to like join the team. You're going to make an investment and help these guys out um, with whatever way you can. Um, technology, uh, insight, introductions. By this time, you have a pretty good Rolodex, I would imagine. Um, so how much money did you did you put in? Was this like, <laughs> where, where'd the money come from? <laughs> right. Where did it come from? So I, I wrote a small personal check. I sold my house in Seattle uh, and was living off savings and a little bit of like side consulting gigs. Um, so I wrote a personal check, but it was also the moment at which um, Angelus was launching their syndicates program, 
where an individual lead investor could uh, fill an allocation in a deal by pulling together other individual investors. Um, so kind of like nano VC, right? I was making my GP commit and uh, wrote an investment memo and recruited, in a sense, other um, individual investors into uh, into the deal. So I did that. Um, that was my first. That was early 2014 in the Zymergen Seed. I did that 2014 to 2017 in a series of uh, SPBs, kind of deal at a time investments. Um, until it was, you know, it was clear this was a full-time job. I was, uh, there was more than enough deal flow. There was more than enough need for this um, early stage um, investing thesis. And so it was time to, you know, be a grown-up about it and <laughs> institutionalize it as a venture firm. Could you talk to us a little bit about the the size of the fund and how the math, how you thought that might work? Um, were, were you thinking like, hey, this would be great if I could raise 50 million or 100 million, but not 500 million or, you know, to do what you wanted to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're quite right. So one of the, the, I would say, learnings and frustrations, and often I guess those go hand in hand from being um, at, you know, much larger firms uh, was the, the phrase, um, you know, that won't move the needle. Like, so seeing terrific extraordinary science teams at the at the seed stage and you know the firm the company wants to raise a couple million dollars and the the 600 million dollar fund can't do that right can't afford to do that it's just not not the best use of their time when they're managing you know lp money at that scale so i get it um but that really motivated me to um you know build a more sensitive needle a smaller needle that was really finely tuned to driving great venture returns, but at these earliest stages. Um, so, you know, I think for me, that's around $50 million a partner uh, to be able to lead um, seed and A, which is what we primarily do at Genoa. But in the beginning, the only general partner was you. Right. So, and instead of doing the usual thing with canvassing LPs, like, you know, knocking on the door at CalPERS and CalSTRS and all these state pensions and the Harvard Endowment, et cetera, et cetera, you, you weren't, you're specifically not looking there. You're looking at AngelList and picking up your funding from like uh, accredited investor individuals who put in h- how much at a time? Could be as small as $5,000. Um, could be as much as $100,000. So those those investments in what I call fund zero, because it was, wasn't structured as a fund, but very much on, on theme and thesis for, for Genoa, so pre-Genoa, those ranged from you know, 250K to a million. The largest um, we pulled together was, was a million. And, and that was great, right, to, to be able to offer these I think pretty exciting investing opportunities to individuals. I really enjoy the way um, AngelList innovative and innovated and, and in some ways disrupted the early capital formation landscape that way. So I was excited to kind of be a part of that that movement. Uh, but it does have an upper limit, and that was mostly disconcerting to me because it limited my ability to be a great partner to these entrepreneurs. Right to be able, I couldn't say. I will lead your seed round 
with X million dollars because I didn't know if I had access to <laughs> that kind of capital or right? I had to go ask other people for it every time. So that was, I think, the, the motivation to at least, um, you know, institutionalize as a, as a fund. Venture is not perfect. Most companies shouldn't raise venture. There's nothing, you know, magic about it, but it does have some benefits uh, and it is a, a well-honed tool at this point for, uh, for supporting, you know, really early stage companies. Now, I'm imagining that the average AngelList member, I mean, this is quite a leap of faith. I mean, they don't really know you personally. Um, you're kind of hanging out your shingle there. Hi, I'm Jenny Rook. Here's who I am and what I do, my training, my experience. Uh, and and here's the, here are the investment opportunities I see. Uh, and, you know, maybe I'm like a, a wealthy, you know, heart surgeon or something somewhere. And I've got, you know, a quarter million dollars to invest. And I, I just, I look at Jenny and think, yeah, I kind of, I see the, the possibility and I'll, I'll put some money with her form of trust. Yeah. It seems crazy when you put it that way. Like, how did that, <laughs> how did that <laughs> <What>? happen? <laughs> you know, it was very much built it up over time, right? That, that first um, deal in the, in the Zymergen seed, that was around 250 K that was around 30 uh, individual participants about half of them I recruited to the platform. I said, hey, this is what I'm doing. So they did know me, they knew my okay. background. And, and then half of them um, were actively on AngelList looking for deals. And frankly, it was pretty differentiated, right? It was, it was I think the only life sciences uh, kind of channel uh, at the time. And, and I think there's something really appealing about this thesis to, to um, very technical people and to operators, because it is very much, um, you know, that technology meets biology. And it's very much about building companies that make real, real things that, you know, have products that go into the market. And so it's, I, I think, more relatable to a set of um, interested investors, whether they be angels or, or LPs, uh, larger LPs who, um, you know, are, are kind of maybe coming through a journey that that mirrors mine to some degree and find this both um, exciting and, and more relatable than perhaps the, the esoteric world of therapeutics development. Well, it's... Uh... It's really interesting to see not just the originality in the investment thesis around biology and technology, but the originality in like how you collected the, the fund. Um, and um, there's just multiple levels of, um, of risk and uncertainty or just, you know, unorthodox um, <laughs> thinking uh, at work here. Um, and, and then to see it work, well, what was the moment when, you, you know, you felt like, okay, maybe this is, this is working. This is getting somewhere. <laughs> I would say, I think it might've been very recently, to be honest. I think it might've been, um, our first close on Genoa fund two, which happened in January. Um, and, and I thought, oh, uh, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life that's great. <laughs> um, you know, it was, we had our, our wonderful LP base from fund one, I think really happy with, with how we've been executing. So very supportive coming back in to fund two. And it, um, you know, this sense of having been built from the, from the bottom up, um, uh, of just having enough to, to keep, uh, you know, doing this work and, and keep growing, 
the team and the the size of the capital that we have to be able to support companies with, but just just knowing that there's a sustainability um, at this point. Um, and I, you know, don't have to sell any more houses to, <laughs> to keep supporting my investing habit. I mean, this was a long time from 20, what, 13, 14 until beginning of 21, where. Yeah. Yeah. It was a bit of time. Like my last real paycheck, right. Was, uh, I think May of, of, um, 2012. And so there were some lean years in there to, to kind of figure it out. So it's, it's, um, but it was really step by step. Like if I think about it, uh, in every in every case, it was doing the next thing as well as I could, uh, and then trying to figure out the the step after that. And of course, Zymergen has now gone public, and you know we can all see what that's worth. Um, Car- Caribou Biosciences, another uh, a Berkeley spinout uh, run by uh, Rachel Horowitz, uh, Im- Im- impressive CRISPR company. Uh, that's in your portfolio. Um, you know, I, I, we're almost out of time, Jenny, but I wonder, you know, do do you have any, any advice to the entrepreneurs out there, whether they're men or women, um, you know, things you'd like to see more often, or you think people could do, um, a little better at that, you know, they, than they do today. Hmm. Customer contact is always a good idea. (laughs) <laughs> at least in the you know the kind of companies I work with, it's less less relevant in in therapeutics where I think market needs are particularly well mapped, um, and so you don't need to go interview a bunch of patients to find out they need a, a better drug that's more effective with lower side effects. But in tools, in diagnostics, in um, you know, transformational software and life sciences, um, in engineering biology and ag bio, industrial bio. I think customer and partner contact um, is is a great guiding force when when trying to think about how to bring these um, innovations into a marketplace in a successful way. So that in order to achieve better understanding of the problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What kinds of things do you read regularly to just like stay on top of things or uh, you know try to think and get ahead of the curve or mm-hmm. what's in your information diet? I uh, really rely on, on entrepreneurs. It would be silly of me to think I could stay ahead of the sort of entrepreneurs that I'm, I'm looking to serve. They are the masters of their field. They are, they are ahead. They know the thought leaders, they know the papers. Um, so one of the joys of this job is, Every day I get to talk to a company and and ask them, what should I be learning? <laughs> what's, what's happening in the space? What paper should I read? What uh, what conference are you finding most useful as this field evolves? Because it is, it's too broad and too fast, I think, to, to think that one could somehow stay ahead of um, all of those trajectories in, in such a way. And so uh, I really try to take my cues from uh, from the best entrepreneurs about where I should be learning. Has your thesis uh, stayed the same for the second fund, like this this nexus between biology and technology, or or has it been amended at all? It really has. I think this is a this will last um, you know Genoa long after I'm gone. It'll last the field long after I'm gone. There will always be you know a need for a better microscope. We will always need. Um, 
new and better ways to see what's going on in biological systems and to engineer and manipulate them to solve problems. So the technology vectors will keep changing and the understanding of, of biology will keep changing. What the unsolved problems are will hopefully keep changing as we knock a few of them off, um, but there will always be a next one. And so that's, that's what I love about this thesis. Jenny Rook, thank you so much for joining me on the Long Run Podcast. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.